0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Today we have a special episode. We're calling it Nerd Lab. We've had Rob Pickles on the program before. We had him on not that many months ago, and we did this very thing. We sit down with him. Mostly, Trevor and Rob take some articles, some some journal articles, some research, and pick it apart. The good, the bad, the ugly. We're going to do that again, and we hope to do this quarterly with Rob because, Trevor, why did we choose Rob?
1: Well, what you're probably not going to see in the episode is you get Rob and I together when we're off mic, and we just make fun of each other in a way that, Chris, probably makes you look <laughs> friendly. <laughs> so Ooch. I can't actually, even
0: imagine. I can't even imagine.
1: So, yeah, no, it just uh, we have a lot of fun together. But that said, I have worked with Rob for a long time, and he has one of the best critical eyes for research I've ever seen. He can just take a study or take a presentation that somebody's giving and just dive right into it and find what works, what doesn't work, what are the issues, what are the things they should have considered. And he's not the kind of guy that's going to hold back his opinion. He's gonna tell you what he thinks, which is exactly what we want.
0: Yeah, he has opinions and he likes to share them. So uh, let's hear from Rob and Trevor and myself now.
1: Hey listeners, we've started a bi-weekly series on our website that we call an FTW or free this week. Every other week, Fast Talk Labs will release one story for you, our listeners, to enjoy. We've already released cyclocross skills and drills from Coach Grant Holicky, our workshop on the Training Peaks performance management chart, info on chronic training load, and the best features of Strava, Training Peaks, and Garmin Connect. Free articles and videos are waiting for you at FastTalkLabs.com. Join today at our free listener member level to enjoy this content. Rob
2: Pickles, welcome again. The illustrious Mr. Pickles. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. I remembered this time. You remembered this time. We got that in.
1: (laughs) I swore every time we have you on the show, I would refer to you as the illustrious Mr. Pickles. How about illuminated next time? Can we change it? Illuminated Mr. Pickles? Illuminated, yeah. I kind of like that. Remind me next time. Okay, how about we that. just
2: shorten it to the ill, the Ill. Rob Pickles? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm ill, and, and, and I'm not sure that that's politically correct uh, term at this time. Okay, so I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, we'll just go illuminated. All right. Very good.
0: Ornery and illuminated. Rob Pickles, are you ready to duel with Trevor today? I sure am. Great. Let's jump into our first study. This one is is entitled, What is Known About the FTP Test Related to Cycling, a Scoping Review? Authors are John Mackey and Katie Horner, and they're working out of Dublin and the University College Dublin, to be specific. Trevor, what's the
1: overview of this study that we
0: should start with?
1: So this is a review, and... I think it's a worthwhile review that needed to be done because so many cyclists use this 20-minute test to figure out their FTP. Obviously, this is a concept that was created by Dr. Coggins and Hunter Allen. So they write about it pretty extensively in their book. And the idea here is you do a 20-minute all-out time trial. uh, You multiply it by 95%, and that gives you a pretty good estimate of your FTP. Your FTP is basically the power that you can hold for about an hour. And that, they say in their book, correlates fairly well with maximal lactate steady state, uh, which is a physiological marker of kind of the highest level that your body can somewhat sustain, hence maximal lactate steady state. But this hasn't been tested that much. And they even point out in the review, there weren't that many studies to look at. They only had 15 that met their criteria. Fifteen. Fifteen studies that's, total. That's
0: pretty few, given FTP as a concept has been around for how long? Tw- 20 years? Uh, offhand, I don't
2: know, but it's universal among athletes. Right. 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 Yeah. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty few.
1: So, and yeah, you have how many cyclists out there that are doing this 20-minute test and saying, this is an estimate of my threshold, <laughs> right, and they're basing right. all their training zones off of it. So, worthwhile to start doing the research saying, does it actually pan out? Does it actually show what you think it's showing?
0: Yep. Very good. Rob, your reactions to this study when you read it, what are your thoughts here?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I always, whenever I get a study, I look at the title, I read the abstract, and... And I start formulating opinions. Now, that might be judging a book by its cover, but it informs me on what are the questions that I have about this? When I don't have enough information, I have to ask myself, what what things do I need to know to truly understand what's going on here? And in all honesty, the first thing that came to my mind was, and, and Trevor, I'm going to let you finish this statement, the best predictor of performance is? Performance. Performance itself, right? And so, you know, hey, for me, I'm already on board with this because it's a performance-based test. And the reason that's important is it's integrating a lot of things, right? It's integrating the baseline physiology within a person's body. It's integrating mental capacities. It's integrating uh, the ability to perform, right? And so that's why performance is a great predictor of performance. The other side of this, though, is that, you know, I oftentimes feel... That We try to make too many connections between things. For me, the 20-minute FTP test is good enough to just be a test unto itself. I personally don't necessarily take it to FTP. We can talk about that more. But I don't know that we need to make some of the connections that we're needing to make. In some regard, I don't even care whether or not it ties back to MLSS, LT2, VT2, all of these other performances that we're looking at.
1: So the counterargument I'm going to give, I I agree, and I have read a few studies on FTP saying that it is reliable, it's repeatable, so it can actually be pretty good to see improvements in the athlete's performance, so it can be very valuable for that. Where I have some concerns, and the authors actually bring this up towards the end of the review, they point out that there is yet any research showing that FTP is based on anything physiological. They compare it to CP. So it's critical power. Critical power does seem to delineate that uh, the high intensity versus the severe intensity zones, which is a physiological point. They actually say that um, critical power is superior because of that, and then say FTP, there's nothing physiological about it, doesn't seem to demarcate any particular point. To me, that's relevant because as a coach, if I'm trying to give my athletes training zones so that they can target in on a particular energy system and you base it off of ftp you're trying to create physiological zones based off of something that isn't physiological 100 percent. and if all
2: the viewers <laughs> if we did the facebook live like we were talking about earlier all the viewers could see that i just pointed at trevor and and that's because we are taking something that's not physio- well i don't want to say not physiological right but we're taking a performance test and we're trying to tie it to the underlying physiological occurrences in the body. And we know for a fact, right, that if um, somebody goes in a lab and we test their lactate threshold, uh, their base zone that derives from that, it's going to be within a range Of that lactate threshold the zones were always based on what was happening with the lactate curve it was never about finding the lactate threshold and then just applying a formula to that right you know oftentimes that base zone is going to fall within i don't know 68 to 72 maybe some people as high as 75 percent of threshold so there is an individuality to this that's really really important and just knowing ftp in my opinion trevor and i think that you're saying this I don't know that that's enough information for me to actually define zones based on that. But that's not a bad thing because a 20-minute performance test is a great marker of improvement or, in my case recently, lack of improvement (laughs) uh, in your training.
1: So if this was video, what you're also not seeing is how often Rob just points at me, shakes his head, and just walks away. (laughs) Yes. And actually, if you you look at the original version of Dr. Coggins and and Hunter Allen's book, which they've now uh, improved on in in more recent versions, and you look at early versions of, of some of the software, everything was based off of FTP. All your training zones were based off percentages of FTP. And we've now pretty much said, that's not sufficient. Everybody's different. You can't just say, well, two people have the same FTP, say 300 watts, all their zones are going to be the same. I agree with you. This 20-minute test can be really good for just doing that benchmark of how are you improving, uh, what's going on with your form. It's not going to show everything. It's not going to tell whether you're going to win in a sprint, whether you're going to be able to cover an attack in a race. But if you're talking about that time trial or breaking away and be able to, to put out the effort, going out and doing a 20-minute test periodically is going to give you a good indicator.
2: Yeah, Trevor, I think that, you know, the specificity that you're mentioning there, right, that this performance will be really indicative of your performance in certain situations. A a steady state effort uh, where the workload is not varying too much. Uh, So time trials, breakaways, like you're saying, if there's more of a, you know, intermittent effort, um, maybe uh, in a road race or a crit or in a mountain bike race. And, And I found it interesting that the performance that they tried to tie this back to repeatedly in this paper was to mountain bike performance, which right. is probably the place that you would get the least, you know, accurate results because of the non-steady state nature of that. Uh, so again, you know, it's, it's about that specificity of the individuals. Uh, and they, they definitely bring that up. When, when we compared to different laboratory based tests, um, when compared to lactate threshold and maximal lactate steady state, they said, hey, you know, this is similar on average to lactate threshold. Right. I believe they said there was a bias of about three watts. So, hey, horseshoes and hand grenades and uh, threshold prediction, good enough for me. But that there was such an individual variation. Because remember, we're looking at this with group averages. And the group average might have had a low bias. But if we look person to person, then there's a large variation there. And so the authors said, hey, we can't necessarily call this equivalent to an, a lactate threshold test because uh, for individual people, it, it's not going to be accurate at all. But when we look at that group as a whole, then the averages are going to be appropriate. We see the same thing with maximum lactate steady state in that as well.
1: So, yeah, exactly. Pretty much what they're saying is if you do a 20-minute time trial uh, to, get your, to get that estimate of your FTP, you can't then say, well, that's my MLSS or that's my critical power or my lactate threshold. If you took 20 people and had them all do the FTP test, uh, you might get an average that's very, very close to the average for their lactate threshold. So as you're saying, in a group, it's going to match up. But as an individual, you could be higher, you could be lower. You just can't say it's the same. Yeah, and I think that that's a a point of research that's really important in general,
2: right? So outside of this study, um, you know, let's say uh, we give a group of cyclists a supplement And uh, performance improves 5%. You know, as readers, oftentimes we think, oh, good, everyone's performance goes up by 5%. And that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. 50% of people could have had no improvement and 50% could have had a a 10% gain, right? We can kind of tease that out a little bit with a standard deviation. That's why it's important that we include that. But oftentimes we ignore that number and we just look at the big headline, 5% improvement. But we need to understand, again, the individuality nature of this, which for me is a recurring theme in this paper, that something is neither good nor bad. It just matters whether or not it's appropriate to achieve the goals
1: that you're looking to achieve. Right. And I can tell you from experience as a coach, you really see exactly what they're talking about. I have athletes do this 20-minute test all the time. And you'll have some that are true time trialists. They'll go out and do it. You'll see their their power is steady, their heart rate's pretty steady, and you just look at that and go, okay, this is a true aerobic effort. They have other athletes that go out and do it, power is much less steady, you see this dramatic rise in their heart rate over the 20 minutes, and you know they're actually pulling in a lot of anaerobic metabolism. This is not a true representation of their aerobic power. So you can see that a bit in the athletes, but if you just say, don't look at that information and say... This is a representation of my lactate threshold. You could be way off. And they actually bring that up. They point out the fact that um, if you read Dr. Coggins and and Hunter's book, uh, they have a warm-up protocol protocol that's pretty severe. It's actually very similar to the 4DP test where you do a five-minute all-out effort. Then I think it was rest about 10, was it 10 or 15 minutes, somewhere yeah, around it there? Was
2: 10 minutes of low intensity followed by five minutes of passive recovery. Right. So 45 minutes total, five of which is an all-out
1: VO2 max effort. Right. And the idea here is to clear out some of that anaerobic energy so that when you get to this time trial, it's going to be more aerobic in nature. So they do say in this review that the 95% multiplier only really works if you do that warm-up. If you do... Just an easy warm up because a lot of these studies just did 10 minutes of riding easy. They didn't have that all out five minute effort. They actually say in this review that an 88 to 91% multiplier would be more appropriate.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting because it shows the human way of thinking. Because the authors that chose to do the easier warm up, easier in quotes, I guess, but the authors that chose to do the easier warm up. Said that, hey, this is the way that we get the biggest, the best 20-minute power following this. And, and as people, we always want to see the highest number that we can possibly get. Whether or not that's an accurate representation of what's happening, we still want to get that highest number that we can. And uh, you know, I found it really interesting, you know, that they, that they pointed out that Coggin has and Alan, um, that they have that five-minute max. And for me, it it matters a lot because I think that I'm an anaerobic athlete, you know, uh, Trevor, as you were saying, and I realized real quick that uh, 95% does not appropriately predict what my threshold is, that I always, even without reading this study, I always, you know, I'm saying years ago, went to a 92% of what I could do, or for me, oftentimes what I would do, I would actually do 95% of a 30-minute effort Instead, trying to make that a little bit longer, trying to make my anaerobic legs hurt a little bit more and uh, have a more accurate prediction of what's going on there. And, um, you know, it was it was interesting with uh, pacing strategy, uh, because as you were saying, a very steady pacing strategy is probably something that we're going to see from an aerobic athlete you know i i know in myself as an anaerobic person I, I would probably go out a little too hard try to try to just hang on toward the end there and uh watch my power just drop you know and uh you know i i would just um i would look and have an average power for the for the interval and just be like don't lose another watt you know just yep. <laughs> like everything i can to not let it lose one more watt in my average um but it, from this they almost said that familiarization with the test was more important than pacing and i think that anyone who's done this test you know that you have to go out and do it a few times before you understand how to do it, before you understand how to put yourself in that place, right? Because this is not an easy test to do. And because it's a performance-based test, then that mental aspect, how, how tough are you? How long can you hold on? How can you endure the suffering really is going to impact your
1: performance during this. Right. And that goes back to your point of the best predictor of performance is performance. You need to familiarize yourself with this test to be able to perform it well.
2: I so, agree. But that does not mean that performance is the best predictor of training
1: zones. Yes, which is fair. But you know, I hope everybody listening to this, you've been a little surprised by what we're saying is the multiplier because everybody thinks 95% and they're saying, that's only if you did that hard effort. If you did an easy effort beforehand, multiplying by 90% might be more accurate. And I can hear a whole lot of people right now cringing going, but that's not the number I want because I have seen athletes do this 20-minute test and then go, well, I wasn't having a good day. So I multiply it by 102%. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my,
2: my power meter must have been a little off. Right. So I'm just going to boost right. this a little bit. And, and that's- cooking the
1: books. And that is where you get in trouble. I have honestly had athletes that cannot complete five-minute intervals at what they say is their FTP power. And I'll have the conversation with them going, what is FTP? Well, it's what you can hold for an hour. Did you just complete a five-minute interval at that power? No. Could you complete a five-minute interval at that power? No. Then it's not your one-hour power. But I swear it is.
2: (laughs) Yep. Yep. You know, for the listeners, uh, as Trevor is mentioning this, you know, a, a description. Get your get your notepads and your pencils ready because the warm up that was described by Coggin and Allen is uh, it's forty five minutes total. It was twenty minutes at a self selected low intensity, three one minute intervals of fast pedaling. I believe they said over a cadence of a hundred, uh, with one minute recoveries, five minutes of low intensity again, followed by that five minute max effort, and then ten minutes of low five minutes of passive recovery before you start the test, which is interesting, right? The the five minutes of passive recovery before you start the test, like you're, you're going into this baby cold in some regards, your heart rates come down, your your ventilation has come down. Um, but I was thinking, you know, maybe this is the time that I'd be uh, slamming a gel and, and recalibrating my power meter and, and everything else to get to get ready for it.
1: So if you're using this, Basically, the review says it's it's a decent estimate. It's a reliable test. It can show improvements. Uh, I just hope you really heard what we were talking about in terms of doing the proper warm-up, making sure you're using the proper multiplier if you are intending to use this data in order to determine what your training zones are to help determine your training zones. If you fudge it and start giving yourself a much higher number, you might be able to brag about that on the group ride, but you're going to give yourself really bad training ranges, really bad training zones, that's going to hurt your training.
0: We could talk at length more about FTP and the 20-minute tests and, and what you'd like to see next in the, the research literature to to tease it out even further, but I think we should uh, move on to the next question here. Not not the next question, the next study. This one is entitled Time Spent Near VO2 Max During Different Cycling Self-Paced Interval Training Protocols. It is a 2021 publication in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. Uh, Trevor, do you want to try pronouncing the names of the authors on this study, or shall I?
1: Oh, you're going to do that to me? (laughs) Let's trade off. (laughs) Uh the first author is Cristiano uh Daliagnol?
0: Dalagnol is how I would probably pronounce it. That's I don't know if, better? I don't know if they're is this a Brazilian team or a it's Italian. Brazilian. Okay. Tiago Ternes and uh Ricardo Dantas de Lucas. Pretty good?
1: Fantastic. <laughs> Thank <laughs> Thanks you. Thanks for
0: giving me that first. Name. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so Rob, why don't you start this time with kind of the
2: brief overview of what was being looked at in this study. Yeah, in this study it was it was pretty interesting to me actually. If we go back to the the title here, it's time spent near VO2 max during different self-paced and I have that highlighted on my page, self-paced interval training protocols. So what they did was they had subjects go through a, a series of different intervals, but they blinded the subjects to how hard they were working, but they let them choose their own workload, uh, which, which is, in my opinion, really interesting and potentially really painful. So the authors did four different interval lengths, uh, a, a four minute on, one minute off, uh, four minutes on, two minutes off, so same on duration, but uh, double the recovery. They also did eight minutes on, two minutes off. So now we're working for longer, followed by uh, eight minutes on and four minutes off. So the longer work duration followed by a longer recovery. Uh, And during that, they recorded uh, metabolic and ventilation uh, information, and they determined how long subjects were at or above uh, 90% of their VO2 max and tried to sort of quantify the effectiveness of uh, the different work-to-rest ratio is based on that. Now, Trevor, I'm going to move on from here with with a question. If you were going to do a four or an eight-minute effort to push your VO2, about what percent of threshold do you think you would choose to do that?
1: Well, this is the big question of the study. And the big thing that I highlighted was how relevant is time at VO2 max Ooh. or near VO2 max? Well, with me specifically, I'm really old and just getting decrepit and weaker. <laughs> so such a positive
0: outlook on life. <laughs> oh, wow.
1: wow, coming in the holiday season. Wait till wait till you're fifty. <laughs>
2: so,
0: I will wait. Yes.
1: <laughs> you know, for me, it's just trying to see that number go down less, as mm. opposed to what I can do to improve that number. Yeah, that's a really good question because, frankly, if I'm trying to improve somebody's VO2 max, and I am a big believer that if you're a brand new cyclist, you can improve VO2 max, but it's one of the first metrics that I think you really peak out very early on. So it's very hard to really improve it beyond dropping weight.
2: In an absolute sense, once you're trained, yeah, we see very little changes in VO2 max at that point.
1: But if I was going to hit somebody with some work to to, you know, to try to hit that higher end there, so if you're thinking about, you know, trying to get them strong for a four-minute climb in a race or those shorter efforts versus a 30-minute time trial, which is steadier and more about lactate threshold, um, I'm actually giving them really short intervals. I wouldn't give them four-minute or eight-minute intervals. I'm going to give them those 30-second or one-minute intervals. And that's Trevor, a, a a thing that I
2: have as a as an improvement upon this study is that they did not include more of the thirty
1: thirty the shorter
2: interval VO two efforts.
1: So they actually reference another study uh, from two thousand sixteen that was called "Interval Training in the Boundaries of Severe Domain Effects on Aerobic Parameters." And so first they take the time to defi- define what is the severe domain. So if you are thinking training zones. You have your threshold zone, um, and then the you know above that, up to the highest point that still elicits VO2 max. So people would think of this as if you were looking at the Dr. Coggins training zones, this would be his VO2 max zone. They basically define critical power as the low end of that zone. Critical power can be right around lactate threshold, often just slightly higher. And the high end of this, they had a, a tougher time defining it, but it was the highest intensity and the shortest duration that elicited VO two max. And they gave two groups of athletes intervals. One group did, I think it was four minute intervals at the low end, so right around CP, just slightly above. The other group did intervals at the high end, um, but they had a they used a percentage. I think, max time that they could do at that, that high intensity as the, the length of the intervals, meaning every athlete had a different length of interval. But if you look at the graphs of it, their intervals were right around one minute, somewhere in that range, kind of 30 seconds to one minute. And what they found was that group working at the very high end of that severe zone um, saw greater improvements in VO2 max and greater improvements in lactate threshold. I think this
0: reminds me of a conversation we once had about VO2 max intervals in quotes with Sebastian Weber and how kind of silly the name is because you can't, essentially they don't, you can do one, but you can't do seven of them in a row, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So the five minute VO2 max intervals. So if you did five by five and you actually did them all at your VO2 max power, somebody would have to carry you home. (laughs) Right.
2: Well, but not if you did that based off an inflated FTP, Trevor. Well,
0: there, you there you go. There you go.
2: Okay, so back to this th- this study. So if I were to self pace, I, I took a guess. I said, "Hey, you know what? Mm, if I was going to go out and do a four minute effort right now, I'd probably do that at 125 percent of my threshold. And if I was going to do an eight minute effort, probably do that at about 115 percent of my threshold." I look back at my historical data. How much history? Uh, years. Years. Okay. No, actually, um, I, I look back at my past uh, six months um, because I haven't been riding much in the past two months. So I had to extend my range a little bit. Mm-hmm. When I went back, it, it, it appeared that my four-minute efforts were were typically between 120 and 125%. So I was maybe a little optimistic on that, but not too bad. Uh, and then my eight-minute efforts were between 112 and 115%. So I was I was pretty spot on there. Um, But then I also, I looked at this for the participants, which was not necessarily easy because they didn't report the information for the participants. Um, And so what I did, I actually out of the Mackey study or McKay, John Mackey, right? Mackey. Mackey. Yeah. Yeah. Mackey. Irish. Um, You know, that study is pretty universal. I pulled um, a a prediction of FTP out of the power max uh, equation in there. And I applied that because they did report the power max of these subjects, and I took that on average. So anyway, in this in this current study, subjects P max was 315 uh, watts, uh, which means their predicted FTP was about 214 watts. Um, that's one thing to note, right? Because when we go back and we look at the subjects, there was eight recreational, two trained and too well-trained in terms of ability. Um, And so that relates to my my do we need expertise in self-pacing these or not. So we'll put a pin in that. Um, But when we go back and we look at the workload that they did, they did 261 watts for the four minutes on, one minute off interval. That's about 122% of FTP. That's real similar to what I would have done. For the four minutes on, two minutes off, so the longer recovery, they were at 275 watts, which is 129% of FTP, if anything, slightly above what I would have done. On the eight minutes on, two minutes off, they were at 234, that's 109%, so a little low. Um, But eight minutes on, four minutes off, they were at 250 watts, that's 117%. So the takeaway from this is even though these riders had no feedback for how hard they were going, they were not told their wattage. And given that they are recreational cyclists, eight of them, maybe that wouldn't have meant anything to them. They were remarkably close to what I would have recommended for myself or for other people to do this at. And I found that one of the most interesting points of this study, that if you just unleash someone and have them go as hard as they can for these four or eight minute efforts, they're going to go about the right
1: pace. Yep. So I actually, they do show actual graphs of some of the intervals from these athletes. It says mean response. So I think this was averaged out. As a coach who's looked at a whole lot of these sort of intervals to teach my athletes how to execute it well, I would look at this and go, that was good execution. Did a good job here. Uh, Because you see that power in each interval come up to whatever level it is that they're trying to sustain um, it's held pretty steady and it's pretty much the same across all four intervals in, in all four cases. Yeah. So it's actually quite impressed. If an athlete had sent me this, I'd go, that was a good workout. You did well. Yeah, I think
2: oftentimes what, what you would predict that you would see, right, Trevor, is that that first interval looks real good, real high power numbers, yep. and then they steadily decline thereafter because you overcooked yourself on the first one. Uh, and, and they didn't necessarily. I don't know if that's a part of maybe the um the training or familiarization session um, that they did, uh, but execution on this was great. In that same graph, we also see uh the VO2 line, um, how much oxygen they're they're taking in and utilizing. And it, it follows again another predictable pattern. Uh on the very first interval, uh even though the the power, the effort goes straight up to where it needs to be. Uh, VO2 lags behind a little bit, yep. and they're not reaching a steady-state VO2 really until the very end of that first effort. In the second effort, VO2 comes up a little bit faster, and they're maybe reaching um, a steady-state VO2 about halfway through the effort. On the third effort, um, they're reaching steady-state VO2 a third of the way into the effort. And on the last effort, almost from the, the onset of the effort, uh, you know they're at steady-state VO2. And I think that this lag period in VO2, you know, is something that we need to consider. The authors predicted that the four-minute efforts would elicit a higher power output, and they were right. You're going to go harder for four minutes than you will for eight. But they also said, hey, because that uh, effort is shorter and the power output is higher, then VO2 is going to be higher, and therefore they're going to spend a longer time at or near VO2 max. And when I first saw this, I thought quite the opposite because I was thinking of of this particular fact, right, that there is a lag in VO2. Therefore, the eight minute effort would have a longer time at VO2 max or, or thereabouts because the lag period is going to take up the first two, three, four minutes of that effort. And then you're going to have an additional four minutes right in the eight minute total you're going to have an additional four minutes where you're riding right at that vo2 level you add that up and uh and you're going to have more time at vo2 max trevor what what did they find in the study
1: so i'm looking at the chart right now and it was the eight by four minutes where you saw the greatest total you know absolute length of time spent at, uh, at, at VO2 max. So they had 687 seconds. Now, interestingly, the second longest was the 4x2s at 457 seconds, then the 8x2s at 364 seconds, and the 4x1s, you saw the least length of time at, uh, at VO2 max, which was 284 seconds. But... It, If you look at as percent of the total time, like you'd expect that because the eight minute intervals, you're doing twice as much time at intensity. So uh, if you look at percentage of the session time that was spent at VO2 max, then it changes up a little bit. The best were the four by twos, 47.7% of the time spent at VO2 max. Next best was the eight by fours at 35.8%. Then the four-by-ones at 29.6%, and the lowest in terms of percentage were the eight-by-twos at 19%, which I found pretty interesting. And the thing that was surprising to me, it was in both cases with both the four-minutes and the eight-minute intervals, it was the longer rest periods that resulted in the greater length of time, both as a percent and absolute time, um, spent at VO2 max.
2: Yeah, Trevor, that recovery portion took me by surprise too, right? I think that, um, I don't want to say it's common knowledge because maybe it shouldn't be, but that exactly as you're saying, if the recovery uh, period is too long uh, and your ventilation comes down, then you just have to re-go through all of that ramping up again on the next interval. And that to maximize time at VO2 max, you want to have a relatively short recovery. Four minutes, doesn't feel relatively short to me, you know, to to, to tell you the truth. But, you know, I think that the takeaway is that that 8 by 4 is if we're looking at just total time at VO2 max, uh, you're trying to get as much there in a session as possible, then we're learning that the longer efforts are worth it. However, the four-minute, especially the four-minute interval with the two-minute recovery, there's, there's good economy there, right? Because, um, it was a, a shorter effort. It was a much shorter duration for the workout. I mean, the workouts basically half as long and the percent of time at VO two max, uh, was higher. Uh, and so if you have a, you know, a, a few moments, you know, you have an hour on the trainer, uh, in, in between meetings. Now that we're all on zoom, um, you know, then, then that's the way to go. If you're just looking to maximize your time at VO two, then the longer intervals are what's going to do that for it. I think if we go back and we look, Trevor, at the the percent of their FTP, right? Um, the eight minute on, two minute off had an average workload of 234 watts, right? That's only 9% higher than their FTP. And, and it's really the one that looks out of place compared to the others, right? Yeah. So the highest percent was 129, then 122% of FTP, followed by 117%. Those are relatively tightly grouped. And then that 109% really just sort of the bottom dropped out of it. Now, for the individuals, the the rating of perceived exertion for all of these came out to be relatively the same. I mean, I, I believe that they use the 6 to 20 scale and, and they were within a 10th of a point, which which is, I mean, no difference really. So yeah. each subject rated or maybe not rated – They chose workloads that elicited the same rating of perceived exertion, right? Because they were able to self-select, which I found really interesting. I thought that some of these would be harder than others, but I think that that's what we're seeing here with eight minutes on, two minutes off. That's a long work bout with very little rest, and so they lowered their workload themselves to achieve that. Maybe it would have been more effective, if they had been prescribed a workload, you know, that was higher than that 109%, uh, but that was not the purpose of this study.
1: Right. But I did find that really fascinating, the ability of these cyclists, and these were not professional cyclists. Not at all. Not at all um, to basically look at the protocol and, and find that power that allowed them to essentially complete the complete the protocol complete the intervals um every time and feel like it was about the same difficulty
2: and and do it well trevor do you think that if we did have professional or if this was uh you know a cohort of highly trained cyclists or above do you
1: think we would have seen the same results man that's a good question cuz i mean i do look at those graphs and go that was really well executed That's exactly what I want to see. So even in a pro, I'd want to see very similar execution. So I don't know. My guess is you'd obviously see higher absolute power, but whether you would see the same differences between the different protocols, maybe in a pro, you know, you're getting into oxygen deficit and oxygen debt. And one of the big adaptations in pro cyclists is, uh less less of both um so it might be in a pro they can handle the 2 minute recovery much or the sorry the shorter recovery so the 4 to 1 ratio so the 2 minute recovery on the 8 minutes or the 1 minute recovery on the 4 minutes um and, and be able to do the higher wattage where less experienced cyclists might need that longer recovery time
2: yeah i think something like that would be worthwhile follow up to this certainly Another follow-up that I'd like to see, as we mentioned before, uh, I'd love to see 30-30s, see how that plays into this, because the premise of that is the short recovery, right? In that um, uh, work real hard for 30 seconds, take a very short recovery, work real hard for 30 seconds again, and that the the dip in VO2 in those small recoveries shouldn't be so uh, much that you can't eventually achieve VO2 max by the end of that. Does that play out given the information that we have? The other thing I'd like to see is uh, a one-to-one ratio. Um, The study looked at four to one. It looked at two to one. Can we take that one further? What happens if we do an eight-minute interval with eight minutes of recovery or a four-minute interval with four minutes of recovery? Is that really going to change the game? And I almost wonder if the the four-minute on, four-minute off situation – um, I wonder how strong that would be because you'd be able to hold a really high workload repeatedly for that and uh, really drive very quickly up to that uh, 90% and above of VO2 max.
1: Yeah, now their only mention of that was actually referring to a Dr. Seiler study, and so I'll just read this. Similarly, Seiler and Hetfeld had described slightly higher velocities in VO2 with two minutes compared with one minute active recovery during six, four minute repetitions in well-trained runners with no further increases when extending to four minutes. So that's the the best indicator that we have. So so the question I have for you, Rob, and here's the thing. Is this an honest question or do I just want to answer it? (laughs) Uh, This study gets into something that's becoming increasingly popular in recent research of optimizing intervals is all about increasing the time spent at vo2max and what is your feeling about that is that really what we're trying to accomplish i mean i i go for specificity
2: on this um you know i i do believe but i'm not prepared to back this up right now trevor cuz you're springing it on me uh, I do believe that... Don't worry.
1: I'll answer it when you get it wrong.
2: I know you will. I, I, You know, if I were to say, Trevor, I'd say that, yeah, time at VO2 max, if we are looking to um, improve VO2 max, right, and time at VO2 max, you know, we need to exactly define what that is. Um, here, they looked at both uh, 90% VO2 max and above and also 95% of VO2 max and above. But yeah, one would think that a greater duration in those workloads would lead to a higher adaptation, right? Um, you know, we we see this play out um, when we look across interval lengths at threshold, when we look at them at base, uh, and I would think it would compare here too.
1: I was desperately this morning reading that 2016 study. Uh, so this is the interval training, the boundaries of severe domain. Because that's what they were trying to get at is, is there any validity to this whole question? At least this is one of the questions they had to this uh, time spent uh, at VO2 max. And certainly those shorter, much higher intensity intervals, they saw a greater period of time spent um, at VO2 max. And certainly saw both greater gains in VO2 max and LT. So I would say this is an unanswered question, but there are indicators that your aerobic machinery is going to improve by maximizing that time at the the top end of your aerobic metabolism. But I wouldn't say this is going to improve all aspects of your training. And I'd say it's still a question that needs to be answered. Yeah. Everything
2: always comes back to limiting factors, right?
1: Yeah.
2: And what is holding your VO2 max or your performance back? And uh, there's multiple things that that fuel into that. Um, You can get gains in VO2 max by large amounts of riding at low intensity or by shorter amounts of riding at high intensity. Uh, and I think that you would see um, a change in adaptation based on the needs of that individual, right? This is not the only way to yeah. improve your VO2 max. You know, but I do think that we see oftentimes in... um you know, less trained athletes like this, that these VO2 intervals can rapidly improve someone's VO2 max, more so than we would see in a well-trained athlete.
0: It's around this time of year that many cyclists and endurance athletes enjoy a brief off-season. Recovery is important to recharge your body and your mind for next season's preparation. Recovery from individual workouts is critical too. So, we are pleased to announce the new recovery pathway from Fast Talk Laboratories. Our new recovery pathway explores the best methods to recover from workouts, how to track and analyze recovery, and the consequences of not recovering enough. We tap world-leading experts like Dr. Shona Halson, Dr. Steven Seiler, Sage Roundtree, Dr. Andy Pruitt, and many more. About a third of our Recovery Pathway is free through our free listener membership. Optimize your recovery now. See our Recovery Pathway at fasttalklabs.com pathways. All right, well, let's move on to our final study of the day. This one is entitled, The Inclusion of Sprints in Low-Intensity Sessions During the Transition Period of Elite Cyclists Improves Endurance Performance Six Weeks into the Subsequent Preparatory Period. It is also in uh, the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. Lead author here is Madison Taylor. Um I'm not sure where this study is being conducted, which university. It seems like it might might be up in. Oh, Ronstad's on the uh list of authors here as well. So this is his group, um, or he's part of this study. So uh inclusion of sprints in transition period. Trevor, do you want to give us the the overview here?
1: So this is actually in some ways a follow-up to a study that I really enjoyed that Dr. Ronstad did back in I'm just pulling it up right now. This is back in 2014. The study was called HIT maintains performance during the transition period and improves next season performance in well-trained cyclists. So the gist of this is getting at what happens in that transition period. So you just finished your race season. You're now thinking about the next year. You're not quite ready to get into full base mode. So you have this four to six week, depending on the athlete. It could be longer. It could be shorter a uh, transition period where generally, even in pros, they're just gonna ride easy, they're gonna be unstructured before they get back to training. And the concern here is you see so much of a decrease in performance metrics, in physiological metrics, that they're making the argument the whole base period or what they call the preparation period is spent just getting all these values back. So you don't improve, you're just trying to, to get things back. So they've been looking for ways to, without turning the transition period into full training, doing enough work to be able to maintain some of these physiological markers so that in the preparation period, you can actually improve your level. And that they felt they found that in that 2014 study, but they were using some pretty hard interval work that these athletes had to do once a week. So the question with this one is, if we just tack in some sprints into one of their easy base rides, can you see similar benefits with a lot less work?
0: And I want to be clear here because we so often talk about, and I know this is the off season, there's, the, there's a period where you, you want to set the bike aside if you're a cyclist or you want to put the shoes away if you're a runner and do something else. How does, so the transition period is when you've gotten back on the bike or put in the shoes back on, and you're doing something, but the structure's not there yet. Um, you're pre- you're 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 just easing your way back in. And they're talking about introducing some sprints during this period. Correct. Correct.
1: And I don't think in this case with these pros you have an actual period of time off the bike because I remember they did the first test five days after their final race of the previous season. Okay. Correct.
2: That was the end of the comp phase.
1: Yeah. So it's pretty much they went from competition right into this transition phase. There was not time off the bike.
2: Interesting. But that's just related to the methods of this particular study, you Mm -hmm. know, and the application of that, I think, across the layperson, you know, is um, that there's potentially a benefit, Chris, as you're saying, to take some time
1: completely off. Yes. I'm personally very big on that. But think of this as this is what you should be doing, say, very late October, early November for that first month before you, you get back to uh, that uh, full training and maybe some point in December.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So, Rob, do you want to take it from there? and Tell us a little bit more about what they found.
2: Yeah, I think that there's a few things to unpack from this. Um, one, yeah, we are we're talking about elite cyclists at this point. Um, we have a average VO2 max of uh, five and a half liters. Uh, in, a, in a relatively small person, about 160 pounds on average, uh, about 73 kilograms. Um, and, and as Trevor mentioned before, this initial testing was immediately after uh, their last competition. Uh, and so presumably the riders are at their peak at that point right, in time, right? right? I mean, granted, they might have had a little bit of acute fatigue from, from that particular uh, competition, whatever it may be. Um, but physiologically, they, they really should have been at the top. Uh, so I found that a really interesting comparison. Now, in Trevor's opening, he also mentioned that during this transition period, uh, riders lose a lot of fitness. Um, but in this particular study... Uh, they did two groups, uh, one included these sprint intervals and and the second was a control group that didn't that only did low intensity training. Um, they decreased their training uh, by sixty four percent. So one group did only low intensity. That group uh they only lost one percent of of their fitness parameter and to quantify that, they had riders do a 20-minute time trial. So that plays back into the first study that we recovered today. And that low-intensity only group, they lost 1%. Now, the group that did the sprints, and these sprints, this is not an easy workout. When when I first saw sprints, I was thinking, oh, good, 10 seconds, you know, oh, that's no problem. They did three sets of three by 30-second sprints, so nine 30-second sprints, which, in my opinion, that's quite taxing for one particular workout. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although throughout the course of a week, it's not so taxing, you know, that you're going to be fatigued really from that. Anyway, um, those riders that did the sprints, uh, they actually gained 7% improvement in that 20 minute test so you took riders who decreased their weekly volume to 64 percent, included nine 30 second sprints and were actually seven percent better than when they should have been at their peak which i i found almost baffling i did not see that coming
1: sure so one of the things i found pretty shocking in this study going back to this is not easy stuff and this is a study they could only do with pros. So they did this test with these pros three times. So once at the end of the competition period, one after the intervention period, and then six weeks into the preparatory phase. And the, t- the, the test protocol was a warm up, then a lactate test, where you do five minute stages to determine your, your lactate threshold, then a 10 minute recovery, then a VO2 max test. Which is also the, oh we're not, we're only halfway through yuck <laughs> then ten minutes easy then thirty five minutes at sixty five or sixty eight percent of VO two max then four repeats of a thirty second all out sprint with I think four minute recoveries then a six minute rest and then you do the twenty minute time trial what the heck wow this a is big day that is a huge day. I mean, I have done the lactate test and the VO2 max test in the same workout and left that going, damn, that was tough. Ready for lunch after that one. Right. 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 And here, you're only halfway through it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So that was fascinating. But what I found really interesting in the results was you certainly saw this improvement in the 20-minute time trial in the group that did the sprints, but you saw no other improvements. VO2 max did not improve. General efficiency did not improve. Watt max did not improve. No other measured variables improved, except for just that ability to do that 20 minute test a little harder. And interestingly, there you saw in that group, this, the, the sprint group, um, they were doing that 20-minute test at a, a higher percentage of VO2 max. So they, they measure their VO2 during that, that time trial. So what I get out of this was they weren't any fitter. They just had an ability to go a little harder.
2: I, I reached way back into a Bassett and Howley study. And, uh, you know, if you really break down that endurance performance, right, um, you can look at economy. Uh, and then the other major determining factor is is the VO2 at threshold. Uh, two things play into that, your VO2 max and then the percent of that VO2 max that you're at at that threshold workload. And, uh, and that's the change that we saw here, right? These riders in the sprint group had a higher VO2 uh, during that 20-minute trial and a higher percent VO2 max. You know, does that indicate that something changed within them, that they were able to do that? Or is that just indicative that they went about this trial in a slightly different manner, or in a more rested state? Um, as Trevor said, we didn't see any other parameters of improvement. Their workload at four millimoles of lactate didn't change. The sprint performance among these groups didn't really change. I believe the sprint group had a, a tendency to improved thirty-second sprint performance, but it was not statistically significant, which which I found fascinating there. Uh, and so i almost come out of this with more questions of of why i think that we understand that adding efforts like this into a, a base ride more than one study has shown that they have positive benefits i don't know that we truly understand Why the heck that is at this point? The 30-second effort ought to be primarily an anaerobic or neuromuscular effort at that point, uh, depending on the workload that somebody is doing it at. Why would that improve your endurance ability, which should be primarily an aerobic effort? If we do back up to the earlier study, um, there is some anaerobic contribution into these 20-minute efforts, but at the same time, these riders shouldn't really be seeing an improvement in that because you would think that that system would be firing on all cylinders at the pretest at the end of their competition phase. So I I almost leave this with with more questions. And and I don't know that doesn't make it, you know, bad research or a bad study. It just leads us to say, hey, how, how do we really understand what the heck is going on here?
1: Well it is a really interesting question. And you look at the the previous Ronstad study where they used high intensity intervals, so full interval workout once a week to explore the same sort of thing. And in the, in that study, you saw an improvement in LT. So specifically, they were looking at uh, power at four millimoles lactate. This study, no improvements in power at four millimoles lactate. In that other study, there was. So the other study, you are actually seeing a, a, some sort of physiological improvement, unlike this one. None of those parameters improved. So I agree with you. It almost raises more questions than answers. The best guess I have is that transition period, they basically got some rest. They probably finished the competition period pretty cooked. Pros pretty pretty long, hard seasons. So probably didn't do that first test at their best. They had three weeks to basically recover, but the sprint workouts was doing just enough to maintain their ability to just hurt to just suffer. And so you didn't see it really maintain anything physiological. They just could hurt a little more. They were rested, so maybe able to do that test a little bit harder. That's that's the best guess I've got.
2: Yeah, you know, we we do also know that you know intensity is going to preserve fitness more than low intensity is going to yeah. and you know I worked under uh, Neil Henderson for years and uh you know a guy that traveled uh, quite a bit and maybe still does. Um, you know, and, and he would say, hey, you know, when I'm on the road in the hotel, I get on that exercise bike and, and I start out one minute easy, another minute a little harder, another minute a little harder. And in 10 minutes, you know, I'm going all out at the end, you know, in the in the hotel sort of gym. and And that's what he did to maintain his fitness when he was on the road and also still trying yeah. to race competitively. And that theory looks like it's carrying over into this. Yep. Is that
0: the message for amateurs to take away from this study? What is it? That's, is there anything?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. My message, because of what I took from this, and look, they even said in the study, I'm, just, I'm reading right from the study here, in the conclusions, quote, as they could have been more specifically trained to tolerate this type of stimulus, talking about that sprint group. I, my feeling is doing those sprints in the transition period isn't doing much for you physiologically. So I'm not sure there's a huge benefit to that, even though they conclude that there is. I do think it says something about using sprints to build your ability to tolerate hard efforts.
0: It's almost psychological in a right. sense.
1: And they raise that and actually raise the broader implication of should you be doing some sprint work during a taper? Because again, it's what you're saying. They should have been at their fittest at the end of the competition period, but maybe they were tired. So essentially what they did here was a giant taper. And the sprints are just enough to keep that ability to, to suffer and hurt. And being rested, they were able to perform better
2: yeah for me you know a taper is a reduction in volume but a maintenance of intensity for exactly this reason and i think that anybody who takes intensity out of their um weekly workload you suddenly feel very flat when it comes time to really perform right very good
0: anything else guys you didn't really fight today i was expecting more we well, yeah, had good insults <laughs> Ornery? No. Illuminated today, Rob Pickles? Yes.
2: You no. were illuminated. Thank sometimes, you. Sometimes Trevor is so right, you, you just have to agree with him. Ah. What a nice so thing nice. to say. I
1: feel like I have to insult you in return. No, <laughs> gotta keep,
2: gotta keep balance in the world.
0: Until next time. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions, especially Rob's, on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Rob Pickles and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for
2: listening.